We've just turned the calendar to a new year. What better time to turn the page to a more fulfilling life? That's exactly the journey Beyond the Crucible has charted for you in our e-course, Discover Your Second Act Significance. The three-module video course will equip you to transform your life from, is this all there is, to, this is all I've ever wanted. Each session is led by Beyond the Crucible founder Warwick Fairfax, who shares his own hard-won successes in turning trials into triumphs. And he's got some high-powered help from USA Today's gratitude guru to a runner-up on TV's Project Runway. It's an ensemble of men and women living significant second acts who would command a six-figure price tag if any business wanted to fill an auditorium with them to coach their employees. But we've packed their insights and action steps into our course for a sliver of that cost. And if you act before the end of January, you'll get 23% off your enrollment. Just visit secondactsignificance.com and use the code 23for23. So don't delay. Enroll today. And remember, life's too short to live a life you don't love. Now, here's today's podcast episode. Welcome to Beyond the Crucible. I'm Warwick Fairfax, the founder of Crucible Leadership. There's no question that I am who I am in part because I have Parkinson's, and that has changed me. While physically it hasn't changed me for the better, um, there's other aspects that I think I'm probably better at, probably being more empathetic, probably more patient, more caring. As you say, it's, it's not something you wished or that I wished it happened, but it has. And so you figure out, okay, how does that make me better in certain ways? And, and I think it has. That is a profound statement. And it's not the first time, not by a long shot, we've heard that sentiment from a guest. In fact, it's quite common for those we interview to tell us their crucibles have improved their life, made them richer than they would ever have been without the setbacks or failures. Hi, I'm Gary Schneeberger, co-host of the show. This week, Warwick talks with Bill Brown, his Harvard Business School classmate in the 80s, who describes how he was approaching the pinnacle of his business career as a finalist in Toro's search for a new CEO when a medical diagnosis derailed his plans. He had Parkinson's, but he has refused to let Parkinson's have him. An avid cross-country skier before his diagnosis, he's continued to pursue his passion with gusto, completing 20 marathon events across the globe. He's also dedicated himself to raising money through his scheme for Parkinson's research and living in a way that offers hope to anyone facing a crucible of any kind that their challenges are far from the end of their story. Well, Bill, thank you so much for being here. It's an honor to have you and just to let listeners know, Bill and I were in the same class at Harvard Business School, the class of 1987. We had our reunion in October, and the guy that headed up the reunion for our year, Dan McCarthy, he came up with this really good idea of a session for our class, there are other reunions going on, but for our class of 87 called Glimpses. And he wanted, I guess it ended up uh, four of us, I think maybe, um, giving uh, glimpses of grit and resilience, and I was fortunate enough to be one of the four, and Bill was one of the four too. And so when I heard Bill's story, uh, as we'll unpack that, gosh, he would be a great guest on Beyond the Crystal. He's got a great story. <laughs> uh, so that's kind of where the idea came from, at least for me. So Bill, again, thank you for coming on the uh, podcast. As we often ask, you know, what was life like for you growing up and uh, obviously Detroit and then suburbs of uh, D.C., kind of a little bit about your family and what you love to do and have a feeling, I don't know if marathoning was in there somewhere. You've always been an, an athlete, but what was life like for, for Bill kind of growing up? Sure. And uh, first of all, just thanks for having me on. It's, a, it's an honor to be part of this podcast. I guess I grew up a uh, normal American lifestyle. Um, I was actually an only child, so spent a lot of time with my parents. Uh, we did a lot of outdoor activities, whether it was canoeing or hiking or um, going to state parks, that sort of thing. 
I was athletic, but not very good. <laughs> I, I enjoyed all, all types of sports. Um, ended up wrestling in high school, not with a lot of fame, but I uh, was on the team. And uh, it really wasn't until college that I got more into athletics seriously. Wow. And so you went to Princeton, which is obviously very impressive. And rowing on, on the crew team, I mean, that's, uh, I don't know if we talked about this, uh, maybe we did or didn't, but rowing has always been my favorite sport. I rowed in high school in for my private school in Sydney and then rowed for my college at Oxford, which, okay. you know, it's not quite, if you row for Oxford University, you're like Olympic level. They're seriously good. Like Princeton right. is seriously good. But I rowed for my college, which is, is somewhere between intramural and Oxford level. I mean, it's serious stuff, but you know, I wasn't really that good per se. I rode on the bow side for those, uh, you know, typically bow or seven, at least for, I think the terminology is different in America, so forgive me, but, you know, for English and Australian listeners who row, they'll know what I mean. <laughs> and maybe people who speak more than one crew language in America, maybe they'll understand. But anyway, I always loved it, but, uh, but yeah, being, I think it was a lightweight crew at Princeton, I mean, that's, Seriously impressive. Did, did you like row it? I don't know the head of the Charles and Henley. Did you any of those sorts of things? Uh, actually, yeah, I was fortunate to do both. Wow. We do the head of the Charles every year. Um, wasn't that far away, and uh, we'd take a number of boats up there. And my senior year, I was fortunate to uh, make one of the two boats that went to Henley and uh, raced in the Henley Royal Regatta <laughs> over there. That was definitely a highlight. And yeah. just for listeners, Henley is one of the premier uh, crew races in the world in England. So if Bill was at Hanley, that means Bill was seriously good at rowing, just for listeners to know, a little, little color commentary <laughs> there. But okay. So my my last <laughs> last race in college was at Henley, and we were in a straight four, which means we didn't have a coxswain. Uh -huh. I, I, was, I, was, I was steering the boat. We ended up crashing into the log boom, and we were racing as Jesus College of Cambridge. So at Henley, if you lose by a lot, i.e. if you crash, they don't say how much you lose by, they just say easily. So in the <laughs> records, it says Jesus College beats Princeton easily. <laughs> I don't know if I would have wanted to beat Jesus anyhow. So that's it. That's it. <laughs> the headline writes itself, doesn't it, Gary? You know, Jesus beats Princeton easily, you know? <laughs> kind yeah, of writes itself. Yeah, that that <laughs> In in very large type, you bet. Yeah, and never bet against Jesus. There you go. That was that's too funny. So you graduated Princeton, and um, obviously went to Harvard Business School probably uh, sooner after. I'm guessing, and obviously we met there. We had different sections, but we met there. So talk about your kind of corporate career. It sounds like you worked your way up the ladder in Procter and Gamble, uh, General Mills, Toro. You know, premier brands. So just. Talk about those years, what you enjoyed, what was your path in the corporate arena? Sure, sure. So P&G was before business school. Okay. I took an engineering entry-level job. Um, P&G is one of the few people that actually put graduating engineers right on the production line. Huh. So I was involved in supervising union employees, um, packaging, tide, and other laundry granules, soaps. And uh, after a couple of years, decided that um, while the factory was an interesting place to work, I didn't want to spend my whole life there. Um, so that's why I ended up going back to business school to get a better sense for the entire scope of business. But I like packaged goods, so I ended up taking a job with General Mills, um, which is one of the premier marketing companies, you know, primarily in cereals and cake mixes and those type of products. And I worked there for six years in various roles, ended up as a marketing manager there. And uh, then one day was talking to an executive recruiter and he told me about an opportunity at Toro. And it uh, sounded like a good company. And uh, as an engineer, I get to work with a little bit more mechanical, technical products. Uh, so that appealed to me. Worked on lawn tractors, garden tractors, and then kind of the the new business for us, landscape contractors. And uh, kind of headed up that and grew that business for seven years and, and got into the golf business and back to the residential business. So it's a Good, good career, definitely. That's awesome. So did you start off sort of in the brand management, marketing, product management side, and then production, or obviously eventually you grew into sort of general management over divisions and units, and what was your sort of Right, path? yeah. So at General Mills, it was all product marketing okay. and uh, all the basics of marketing, and uh, took one year out for sales, and then Toro, kind of the same thing but then kind of broadened my responsibility to be more general management. But marketing was kind of the 
entry level, yes. So as you were doing all this, uh, I'm guessing you must love marketing, you know, branding and general management. What is it you really loved about what you did in your career during those days? You know, General Mills, Toro, you know, working up to be a senior manager there. What did you love about the job? Well, marketing, you get to spend time with the customers, understanding what they really want. Mm. And um, so both companies um, were very focused on new product development and uh, coming up with new to the world products or just improving their products altogether to be the, the leaders in the marketplace. So as a result, marketing spent a lot of time, as I say, with customers, understanding you know, their likes, their dislikes. Um, you know, understanding likes and dislikes is quite different for a food product than it is for a lawnmower. Um, but the same basic ideas. And, um, you know, so at Toro, we would spend a lot of time actually watching the customers use the product and understand, you know, what was easy, what was hard about the job they were doing. And as we got into landscape contractor business, we actually, I kind of got all our um group to spend time on the mowers with contractors, actually cutting people's grass and, um, you know, emptying bags of leaves and doing whatever the contractor had to do so that we were walking in their shoes. Yeah. And uh, so, so you really get to understand kind of what they they go through. And then what was what was rewarding was with some of the products we came up with that we made the jobs easier for our customers. And uh, so they had a real affinity with the product. And, um, you know, it was, it was pretty cool when you go out and see a crew with all of your product on their trailer and kind of they, they, they got into the product. And uh, there was something special about the bond between the customer and the product because these were professionals and that's how they made their living using, you know, our machines. Uh, so there, it was definitely a good feedback uh, reward mechanism for that. It's probably different than a General Mills where it's a little harder to talk to a whole bunch of customers since it's consumer and, you know, it's just, what do you do? I guess you can do focus groups and get, you know, 50 people in a row. A lot of focus groups behind the mirrors, yeah, <laughs> as people were tasting the product and what they liked and what they didn't like. But with, you know, contractors, they can tell you, you know, this is what works, you know, maybe it, it's a little uh, cumbersome to get, you know, the back off to empty the leaves or maybe the turning radius isn't what I want or whatever it is. There's probably lots of little things that they'd say, I love it, but, you know, there's 10% here, I'd love you to improve and gosh, how can we improve that 10% and you know, all of that stuff, right? Trying to make something that's great even greater, which is part of the fun of it. Right, and contractors aren't bashful. I mean, <laughs> they'll tell you what's working and what's not working. So. Right. So, uh, so it sounds like that was going great. And uh, you came to a point in 2015 um, where uh, you were one of three finalists, which if, if you're in a company that you love, which sounds sure sounds like you love Toro, it's like this is sort of the pinnacle of your career, when you, you know, go to Harvard Business School, you're thinking, I'd love to either own a business uh, or be, be the CEO of a business. That's the point of why you go there, right? That's the objective, ultimately. I mean, some people stay in consulting and investment banking, but certainly for many, it's being a CEO uh, or an owner of the business. So you were one of the three finalists, super exciting. And uh, just, to be in the, just to be in the mix, you probably felt honored, the fact that you're one of three. But yet it was a bittersweet yeah. moment. In one, in one sense, you were honored, but yet you found out some news that um, obviously changed your life. So just talk about that that moment or those moments in 2015 and that it really shifted your whole life. Sure, sure. Well, actually, I was I was cross-country skiing doing the American Berkebeiner in uh, February, and I was about at maybe 44 kilometers into the race, and I just felt something strange in my leg. And um, I never felt it before, and I didn't kind of have the power that I normally did. And it eventually went away, um, but then it came back a few days later when I was exercising, and it, it would come and go. And so I ended up um, going in to get it checked out and saw a neurologist and came back with a diagnosis that I had Parkinson's disease. So that obviously changed things a bit. Um, my father had had Parkinson's, so I had you know one example at least of what that meant, meant in his situation. And he was a good role model and kind of how to to live with that. Uh, but obviously, that did kind of change things um, both at work and on the home front. And one of the things that you said to me when we talked before this interview, Bill, I found fascinating, um, and I didn't know what you just said now about you were, you know, in a race and you were skiing, your leg felt kind of off and then you exercised later and it felt kind of off. But you told me when we talked before that 
as you awaited the diagnosis, you actually feared it was going to be worse. In other words, when you finally were told you had Parkinson's, it it was certainly not happy, joyful news necessarily, <laughs> but it wasn't as bad as you thought it could be. Was that because you you had a perspective of what it meant for your dad and and you weren't sort of uh, blind as to what Parkin, you know, living with Parkinson's was? But that's just interesting to me that that you were almost relieved that it was, quote unquote, just Parkinson's. Yeah, that it, my my grandmother had passed away from ALS, and uh, so I was actually kind of fearful that that's what it was. And um, you know, Parkinson's, while it's not a great diagnosis, Parkinson's doesn't kill you. It just it affects your quality of life, and you know, everybody has a different trajectory. Um, and uh, I mean, it can get pretty ugly. Um, but at the same time, yes, I had seen my dad go through it, and while it wasn't easy. Uh, he still lived a rich life for another 15 years after that. Mm. So, um, yeah, that that example of how he had lived through that was kind of reassuring to me. Did they catch yours fairly early, or? Yeah, most people who get it tend to be in their you know 60s, 70s, sure. 80s. The the percentage of people who get it as they get older gets higher. Right. And part of that is because what happens is you don't have as much dopamine in the brain, which kind of allows the neurotransmission between the, the, the synapses of the brain. And um, so we naturally lose dopamine as we get older. And, um, you know, I've read someplace, if we all live to be 120, almost everybody would get Parkinson's. Wow. And, um, and uh, I don't know if that's correct or not, but yeah. it kind of conceptually makes sense. And uh, so most people don't get it as young as I did, um, but some people, like Michael J. Fox, get it much earlier and end up living with it, you know, for thirty or forty years. Wow. So how old were you when you got it? Uh, I was fifty-four. Wow. So so talk about that time because right as you got diagnosed, that happened to be at the same time. I think that you were in the running, one of three candidates for the CEO of Toro. So just talk about that whole moment because you had to make some decisions at least i think you felt you had so just talk about that whole period so karen my wife and i had you know we had told close family and a few friends but not that many people and um it was time to do the one-on-one -on -one interviews with the board of directors of the toro company um, kind of talk about what my vision would be if i were to become a ceo and kind of what i'd try to accomplish with the company and uh, I couldn't, with good conscience, have those discussions without letting them know that I had Parkinson's. My neurologist had said, you know, if I wanted to go after the CEO job, that would be fine. You know, I could I could do it um, just to be aware that stress does make the symptoms more severe. It doesn't make the disease progress any faster. It just kind of makes the symptoms a little bit more standout-ish, if you will. And so I ended up um, talking to the CEO and uh, told him what the diagnosis was. And he was very understanding. And we had a long talk. And at the end of it, he said, you know, if you want to continue to go after the CEO job, I'll support you for that. If you want to decide that you don't want to go after and just continue to work here, that'd, that'd be fine too. You know, it's, it's your decision to make. And uh, so Karen and I spent a lot of time over the weekend talking about it, praying about it, thinking about it. Um, in the end, we decided that I would take my name out of the running. Um, it was just, I'd had a great career. We had a great family, um, you know, still had a lot of years ahead of us. And and it, it wasn't affecting me that much at the time. So we figured, you know, let's let's enjoy our life together and, and do some other things besides work. And I ended up working um, for about another three and a half, four years after that point. Um, but uh, I, looking back, it was definitely a good decision not to not to become the CEO, just seeing how things had progressed. I think you've talked about it a bit or implied a bit. Talk about the thinking behind it, you know, what, why you made that decision. Because um, you probably don't know. Do you think you would have had a real shot of being the CEO with, you know, let's say Parkinson's didn't happen? Do you think you would have had a pretty good shot? <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a great question. People have asked me that before at the business school reunion. That's what everybody <laughs> wanted to know. <laughs> You know, I, I don't I don't know. Um, obviously, I thought I had a good shot at it. Um, the other two candidates were very strong also. And uh, the guy who got it's done a great job. And I've supported him since day one when he got it. So um, that's one of those great unknowns. But yeah, just so talk about just the, your thinking behind it, because that had to have been a, oh, sure. a very tough decision. Obviously, you and Karen prayed about it. But I think you've kind of answered it. But just another beat or two on this. What made you decide to drop out, would you say? Sure. Just knowing that um, stress 
impacted the symptoms. And I, I was, you know, I had some symptoms, not that many, but I, I was getting a little bit of a tremor in one of my hands. And, and I had already noticed that, like, if I had to make a presentation or something and I try to stick my hand in my pocket, it would shake more mm. and those kind of things. And, you know, I, I knew that things wouldn't get better. Um, you know, the goal is to maintain as long as you can instead of getting worse. And so I just, I, I knew having watched the CEO who was there, and his predecessor. Um, I just knew how the demands of the job were so great. The, I, I think I worked for the then CEO for about 12 straight years. So I, I kind of got a good insight as to what it took. And and we had been, the three of the final candidates, we'd been working with some development coaches um, kind of on, you know, thinking through what it meant to be the CEO and what you'd have to do. And, um, you know, the message kept coming back. This is a hard job. And uh, you don't sign up for this job unless you're 100% in. No questions, right. if, answer, buts about it. And um, I just knew with having to deal with Parkinson's and having watched what my dad went through, um, yeah, you know, I could do it, but would it be would it be enjoyable with the Parkinson's kind of with me? Um, maybe not quite as much so. Um, and if you're going to put that much effort into a job, you better enjoy it and not be worrying about, oh, no, you know, I, I, you're the you're the spokesman for the company. And, um, you know, I, I envision myself, you know, up on stage talking to, you know, the top customers and, uh, you know, the leader has to be strong and uh, you can still be strong when you have Parkinson's, but you don't appear to be, you know, quote, normal. And that just you know, I, I didn't want to do that to myself. I didn't want to do that to the company either. So and you're probably thinking, can I really be 100% in? I mean, it's going to be hard because I, I'm 100% of who I am. But with Parkinson's, I mean, to be 100% in is going to take a toll. It's going to take a toll on me and my health and my family. You know, uh, when they said you got to be 100%, it's like, can I, can I really be that? And do I want to be that given the effect it'll have on me and my family is the cost. Cost is going to be high anyway, but the cost is going to be exponentially higher than it would have been without this diagnosis, if that makes sense. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah. So obviously it had to have been Parkinson's. I, mean, I don't know if it was better or not better for you because you had a model of somebody that was, you know, in your dad, you know, relatively functional for quite a lot of years, but it had to have been gut wrenching. I mean, do you kind of, look back on the person that was the CEO and has probably taken them from strength to strength and think that could have been me. That could have been me running Toro and I would have done A, B, and C. Maybe not better, maybe indifferent. Do you look back wistfully at times and think that really could have been me. I could have been that guy who ran Toro. Yeah, I mean, I'd be lying if I haven't said, I, if I didn't say I haven't thought about that over time. Um, but you know, I, I haven't thought that I would have done things differently. I, I think what, what, by and large, the current CEO has done a very good job directing the company. Um, I think we would have done a lot of similar things. Um, and, you know, they haven't done anything crazy that, at least in my eyes, they've kind of kept going the, by focusing on what had made the company successful in the past. Yeah, when, you know, I hear people talking about CEOs, I think, oh, yeah, you know, that could have been me. But I haven't spent a lot of time kind of saying, oh, I wish I could have been. It's just kind of more matter of fact. It's not like, gosh, I missed out on a whole lot of fun. And gosh, that would have been cool. It sounds like you're not, you don't overdwell on it. Like, gosh, I would have liked to be the guy in charge. No, because I, I, I don't think that nothing comes from that. And, uh, you know, it's, <laughs> right. it's kind of how, you know, and I'm sure we'll get into it. You know, sure. how, how do I deal with Parkinson's? You know, sure. you, you, you can't think every that often about, you know, what could have been is because this is what it is and you got to move forward every day. And so that's kind of my approach. So before we talk about how you move forward, because, uh, you know, we always ask this on Beyond the Crucible, um, when you got the diagnosis, you made that decision to pull out of the running for CEO. In those weeks and months, what were you feeling? I mean, how were you doing? I mean, there's a physical thing, which you were, but just emotionally, spiritually, how were you doing in those first weeks and months after the diagnosis and the decision to bow out of the running of CEO of Toro? Uh, that's a good question. I guess a few thoughts come to mind. When I was a little nervous, um, you know, what, what would the future bring? 
you know, I think most of us, when we get some sort of diagnosis like that, we read a lot, we research a lot. You read about all the bad stuff that can happen to you, right? Which isn't the greatest upper in the world. And, um, you know, one of the craziest things about Parkinson's is there can be 50, 75 different symptoms um, and how it affects people. And if you line up 50 people with Parkinson's, you get 50 different cases. I mean, just there's a lot of commonality, but I get I get together with a few friends that have Parkinson's and, you know, we compare notes and, you know, there's a few things that one guy has that nobody else has. And you kind of shake your head going, what a weird disease. Um, but so you end up reading about all the stuff that can go bad. And uh, so, you know, there's that nervousness about, you know, where's mine going to go? What's it going to lead to? three months into this, um, you know, am I going to have it for 40 years? You know, will I be able to walk? Will I be able to talk? You know, what are all those kind of things? Um, you know, and you think about what kind of impact will that have on your spouse, your children, you know, maybe grandchildren someday. Um, so there's definitely an uneasiness, you know, at the same time, kind of thinking about, okay, what do I do to minimize the effects of it as much as possible? Um, so I changed my diet a fair amount. Um, started taking some certain supplements that um, our research kind of came up with. My, my wife's very much into vitamins and supplements. This is her sister who's an MD. So they, they were kind of my um, research team. And uh, <laughs> so fair amount of work there, changing that. And then exercise is probably the most important thing you can do. So kind of continuing on with that, I didn't really have to do that much differently, um, but a few things here and there. You know, what's interesting is you're talking, Bill, you know, one of the things we talk about at Beyond the Crucible is when you get a, whether it's health diagnosis or uh, physical tragedy or get fired, you have a choice. You can either, you can hide under the covers and be angry and bitter and saying, this is so not fair and be angry at, you know, God, uh, the universe, friends, family, it depends on the crucible and just say, you know what, I'm just going to be bitter and angry for the next 30, 40, 50 years and eventually life does have an end date for all of us, you know. And that's what that's an that's a choice. That's an approach. Right. But it sure sounds like you didn't take that and said, "Look, I didn't. You know, I wish this didn't happen. This is awful." But it didn't sound like you wallowed in self pity for months or years. I mean, were you nervous, anxious? Absolutely. But it sounds like you say, "This sucks. This is not good." But we'll find a way forward. I'm going to do the best I can. I'm going to eat right exercise and find a way to have purpose. It just, it sounds like there wasn't a lot of anger, wallowing, pounding fists against the wall, yelling, screaming, you know, like, you know, this is not fair. and I'm going to be angry and bitter for the next 30 years. It sounds like you really didn't, I'm not saying you were happy, but it sounds like you didn't have years of anger and rage that paralyzed you. That, that's definitely correct. Um, you know, when I got the diagnosis, I came home, my wife, Karen, said, we'll make it together through this. Mm. And uh, that meant a lot. Having my dad as an example um, definitely helped. Um, you know, I didn't hear him complaining at all. You know, he'd, he'd make fun of things that, you know, when he's played golf and his backswing would go back and everything would shake. And, you know, then somebody hits the ball and, and uh, he kind of got a kick out of that. You know, I know a lot of people kind of question God when things happen to them. And uh, I've never done that. I think I, um, I guess I'm somewhat blessed that, um, you know, I, I didn't have those type of feelings. Um, like you say, you wish it didn't happen to you, but I guess kind of the way I'm wired and, you know, you talk about authenticity uh, a lot. And uh, I think that's understanding who you are. And I'm going to try to figure out how to make the best out of a situation and move forward because there's a lot of exciting things you can do in life. And um, I wasn't going to hide under the covers. So let's pivot a bit to talk about you know, pain for a purpose. And um, this gets back to something we haven't talked a whole lot about. But um, when you moved to Minnesota, I guess, originally with General Mills, um, and obviously, in Minnesota, probably like Wisconsin, I'm guessing, there's a lot of cross country skiing, uh, where I live in Maryland, not so much because there's not a whole lot of snow. So <laughs> you'd be hard pressed to make a career or even a recreational uh, enjoyment of cross country skiing. But um, You've been doing this for many years. Your your boys do it from what I understand. Wasn't one or two of them in the Olympics in biathlon or something? I mean, that's yeah, yeah, seriously yeah. impressive. That's not recreational cross-country skiing. That's like the elite of the elite. So just talk about 
both how you got into it and then how you used that passion for cross-country skiing to really help make a difference for Parkinson's. Because that's, I think, a fascinating story in of itself, your whole passion for cross-country skiing. Yeah, growing up in Maryland, the, the, as you know, there's not too much snow, so I never skied uh, growing up. I, I skied downhill a couple times up in New York with my uncle, but that was and, it. And as you put it, uh, explain to us again what the downhill is called, because you told that at the reunion. We call that gravity-assisted skiing. That, that That's the easy <laughs> stuff, right? You just point the skis that's downhill. The easy stuff. We go up the hills and downhill. Okay, so just for listeners, real skiers ski cross-country, you know, the ones that can't quite make that do the easy stuff and do the gravity-assisted one. Just, you know, a little, little informational moment here from beyond the crucible. So there you go. Anyway, but back <laughs> right. to cross-country skiing. <laughs> right. So when, when I moved to Minnesota, I was running marathons. And um, I had just run the Twin Cities Marathon in the fall of 87. And my boss at General Mills said, what are you going to do in the winter? And I said, well, I'm going to train for marathons. She goes, Bill, this is Minnesota. You can't run in the winter here. Everything's icy and it's cold and it's uh, slippery and it's dark. And she said, you should take up cross-country skiing. And she had taken a class through the American Lung Association where they kind of help teach you how to ski and prepare to do a ski marathon. I didn't even know there were such things as ski marathons. And uh, so I signed up and um, learned how to ski that year. At the end of the winter, um, did a full 50 kilometer race up in Bemidji, Minnesota, which is up in the Northwest part of the state. I came in near last in the race, um, fell about 50 times, got lapped by the winners. Um, and it was truly a humiliating experience, but I was hooked. And uh, <laughs> I'm like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get better at this. And uh, cause there were moments that, that were enjoyable. But the next day I was so sore because I'd never fallen on so many different parts of my body in one event. And, uh, but um, stuck with it and uh, actually got decent over the years. And uh, as, as you mentioned, all of our family got into it. Uh, Karen skied the Berkebiner a number of times. Uh, all the boys have skied it a bunch of times. And that's in some, where in Wisconsin is that? Because Gary, with, it's also in Wisconsin. Is it like northern Wisconsin or where is it? It's northwest Wisconsin, yes. It goes from Cable to Hayward. So that's so, like kitty corner from me because I'm southeast. So that's, <laughs> Yeah, different part. Wisconsin's a big state. It's probably yeah. from uh, from where he is to where the race is about a six, seven-hour drive. It's, it's way up there. So um, when I when I got into skiing, we went to a camp once put on by a local ski club and a gal gave a presentation on skiing the Vassalopa in Sweden, which is a 90 kilometer race. And she started in the morning and started in the dark and ended in the dark. And uh, my, my wife, Karen said, why would anybody want to do that? And I kind of secretly wanted to do that. <laughs> and because it sounded pretty cool. And uh, so as, as the years went on, um, I, I did get an opportunity to ski a couple international races, and there's 20 races in the, the series called the World Lopet. Lopet is the Swedish and Norwegian word for race. So these races are all Lopets. So 20 countries have a race, the kind of the biggest race in each of the country, and they kind of come together for marketing purposes. And uh, so I did a race in Poland. Uh, I did the Vasa Lopet. And uh, so I had done three of them. Um, when I was diagnosed with Parkinson's. And uh, so I kind of determined that I kind of needed to get my schedule going a little bit faster here if I was going to finish these races, because um, I, I had the goal to do all 20. I, I discovered that no American had done all 20 before. So I, I said that that's, that's going to be my goal. And at the same time, I was kind of looking around to figure out what I could do for the Parkinson's community. Um, my father had been involved in some studies, some medical studies. I was I had done the MS-150 a couple of times, which is a 150-mile bike ride from Duluth to St. Paul, raising money for MS. And uh, that's a big corporate event here in the Twin Cities. And I looked around to try to find something like that for Parkinson's. I couldn't find it. There, there were a lot of fundraisers, and some of them, you know, they'd hike a mountain or they'd um, make pancakes or stuff like that. All good stuff, um, but there's nothing quite combining cross-country skiing and um, Parkinson's research fundraising. And kind of looking around, um, we discovered that the Michael J. Fox Foundation, which is the premier um, funder of Parkinson's research, um, had kind of a backroom engine for uh, fundraising and you could create your own event. 
So I decided to create what I called Ski for Parkinson's. And so the idea was much like when people run, you know, run for a cure or do their uh, March of Dimes walk kind of deal that you I do these marathon races and get people to sponsor me. And uh, so did the first one in um, 2016 and was just um, humbled by the response by how much people donated on my behalf. And it was just, it was, it was truly inspiring. And uh, so as the years, we've done it for seven years now, and uh, I'm up to six people are doing it. And uh, it's not a big community. Uh, we're small, but we're powerful. And uh, we've raised uh, about $575,000 over that period of time, uh, which is pretty good for a small group of skiers. And uh, each year we pick up like one new skier and I've got one new person who's joining me next year or this year coming up. On your team, do they, are they all have Parkinson's? No. So uh, okay. three of us have Parkinson's. Okay. One was actually the uh, the boys' ski coach in high school. One had a sister who had it. Okay. Then another one had a father who had it. And the guy who's agreed to sign up for this year is just a good friend of mine who's done a few of the World Lopa races with me. Wow. So that's staggering, that, you know, and just help us understand. So the I tried to look it up, but the uh, the, the, the World Lopa courses, are, you know, they, they vary, right? What's the shortest and the longest course? Of the twenty. Well, the short, so. shortest is in Australia. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> we, we like to make things easy in Australia, right? <laughs> right, right. You, you don't want to have to spend too much time on the course before you get a beer. Well, well, <laughs> I was just going to say that. Off to get the Foster's Lager after that. Why do we all? Why do we all think of beer when we hear Australia? <laughs> well, because it's true. Aussies like drink, drinking beer, but uh, uh, now, so how short is it? Is, is uh, forty-two one? kilometers is the shortest, so that's twenty-six miles. Well, that's a true marathon. Right, so maybe that's because they couldn't find more than forty-two kilometers of snow <laughs> to race on, because it's a pretty <laughs> hot true. country. But so, right. what's the longest one? Longest is ninety kilometers in Sweden. Oh, that's it, the granddaddy of all the Vasalopit. Yeah, plenty of snow there. Uh, plenty of snow. Problem, and the crazy so. thing about that race is it's got seventeen thousand people in it, and everybody starts at exactly the same time. <laughs> oh, no. Now you oh, tell wow. me how you get seventeen thousand people going down a ski trail at the same time. It's like the definition of a bottleneck. So what I, I'm kind of thinking of the 20 you've done, what is the most fun, interesting, challenging, which is, would you say is the most memorable of the 20 that you've done? Oh, wow. Um, I mean, they're all memorable in their own way. Um, the one I've enjoyed the most was the Marchalanga in Italy. It's 70 kilometers up in the Dolomites. It's just absolutely mm. beautiful. And they put snow down the roads and the little towns and people come out and cheer for you. Wow. Um, that was fantastic. Um, the, New the New Zealand race is spectacular just in the topography. Um, it's kind of almost like this no another world kind of um, scenery. Iceland's pretty cool too because it's way up in the middle of nowhere and uh, just spectacular. You almost feel like you're on the lunar surface there too. Wow. So, so this is kind of amazing. I mean, to ski, you know, 42 plus miles, as you said, 20, uh, 42 plus kilometers, 26 plus miles. I mean, for people that don't have Parkinson's would be tough, but somebody <laughs> with Parkinson's where it saps your energy. And I remember one of the things you uh, wrote somewhere is you had to deal with the fact that uh, I believe there was some who you could lap easily, or at least they'd never, they'd never catch you. And yet they would catch you. So you had to deal with the fact that I can't do this as well as I used to. Right. So you, that's one of the things you had to come to terms with. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I was never winning the races, but I was one of the faster people. Like you say, you kind of you, you think we all think we're faster than we are um, as we get older. And that's even without Parkinson's. And you kind of look at somebody next to you on the course and go, I should be able to beat that person. And you can't anymore. And so it's kind of humbling yourself a little bit. Um, but also it it the perspective changes um, as to kind of why you're out there. And it's not just trying to beat people. It's kind of enjoying the whole experience a lot more. So talk about what you do now with, you know, raising money for Parkinson's and just cross-country skiing. And, you know, we often talk about pain for a purpose. How would you say nobody wants Parkinson's or any disease or any uh, crucible, but talk about like the purpose that's come from that. And what's how do you view what you've been through now? you know, and uh, the purpose that's come out of it. And we, we've even had some guests, I'm not saying you should say this, 
that have found some blessing, some hope, even some gain out of loss. In fact, we had a recent series that we've done. So, yeah, talk talk about any of that. Just the the purpose that came out of what you've been through and what you do now. Yeah, um, I mean that that's a tough. That's a great question um, because there's no question I am who I am in part because I have Parkinson's and that has changed me. While physically it hasn't changed me for the better, um, there's other aspects that I think I'm probably better at. You know, probably being more empathetic, probably more patient, more caring. As you say, is is not something you wished or that I wished it happened, but it has. And so you figure out, okay, how does that make me better in certain ways? And I think it has. With that said, I still wish I didn't have it. The the purpose, um, you know, as I as I cross country ski and I train for it, and I think about it and I race. Um, it's not just me that I'm skiing for now. It's um, you know everybody who has Parkinson's because we're raising money. I've been surprised by the number of people who either have Parkinson's or even who don't have Parkinson's who say that you know hearing about me ski or watching is an inspiration. I get it. I find it a little hard to believe at the same time. Um, I mean, I don't want it to go to my head. Um, but I, I think there are people who honestly do get inspired when they hear somebody who's got Parkinson's goes and does 17 world low bit races around the globe. You know, so if if I can be that that example of some hope or inspiration for some people, then that's definitely a positive and I've benefited from that. You know, I, I do think about that a lot when I'm out there on skis. You know, it used to be just thinking about how do I get faster, you know, probably more on the selfish side of things um, about me. And now it's more about thinking about people who are supporting me, people, you know, who have Parkinson's and, and hopefully that we can work towards getting a cure. I'm glad you brought up what you think about when you ski, because you said something else about your thoughts when we talked earlier. Um you said that uh, you don't go two minutes in your life day to day without thinking about Parkinson's. And I'm betting those aren't even predominantly, let alone all, quote unquote, negative thoughts. In other words, what you just talked about, about, about being seen as an inspiration for people about, you know, I may be a little slower, but I can still do this about, about not giving up, about not lying in bed with the covers over your head. When you think about Parkinson's in those every two minutes, because it does affect every kind of movement you do, it affects you in a lot of ways, but I hazard a very strong guess that these aren't negative thoughts. You're not, oh, woe is me when you think about that the majority of the time, right? Yeah, it's not, it's not woe is me. Um, they're not, they're not always positive thoughts. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, it's, uh, I, I'd say it's more matter of fact. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes I'm like, I kind of yell at my muscles, like, don't do that. Um, you know, um, but I'm not thinking like, oh man, why am I the one who's got a leg that does that? Um, right. you know, but I, I kind of yell at body parts to do certain things from time to time. Other times it is kind of, okay, you know, how, how can I with this, get this done and, uh, and still be successful in what I'm trying to accomplish, you know, it's, it's different for different situations. Um, you know, when I, when I'm doing something that I enjoy, I'm probably more positive about it. So when I'm out skiing, you know, I kind of take it more as a challenge, um, right. when it's something like tying my shoes, it's not quite as fun. And maybe I get a little bit more upset at my fingers for not working. Yeah, right. I hear that. It's obviously got to be incredibly frustrating, uh, to do the things that was so simple now seem so hard at times, but yeah, what you said about other people finding you an inspiration that might be a weird thing to kind of digest because you know you're a humble person of faith you don't necessarily like to think of yourself as a, a hero or a role model or an inspiration it's like you know uh almost biblically you know apostles would just you know tear off their you know that like tear their robes and you know no don't don't worship right. me and you know all that kind of thing so i i get that but um still you know you do so much. Yes, raising you know five hundred seventy-five thousand dollars over a number of years is unbelievably impressive. But I'd say just as impressive is the role model you give people with Parkinson's, people with disabilities, people with challenges. In that, 
you know, uh, Parkinson's doesn't have to be a death sentence. It doesn't have to be the end of your life. You can still do productive things. I mean, what you're doing is offering people hope. So maybe there's somebody that's just being diagnosed with Parkinson's or ALS or whatever it is. And I realize ALS, it's very different. And uh, I don't know if it's worse or better, very different, but it's like hope is often huge. So somebody might say, you know, why bother eating right? Why bother exercising? You know, I'm done. There might be some people who've newly diagnosed with Parkinson's might have that attitude. And he's like, you know what? If, if Bill can do this, maybe I do need to eat right. Maybe I do need to exercise. Giving people that motivation can make a massive difference, as you know, much better than I do in a quality of life. So hope is hope can have massive ramifications. So I wouldn't say it's much more, but in one sense, it's definitely more than just raising money. You're providing hope that has right. tangible benefits to other people with Parkinson's and other people in general. And you're just being you, but you being you has, has a massive positive effect on people. Does that make sense? And that is, let me just uh, jump in as the advocate for the listener here. It's not just about people who have had a quote unquote disease, right? The way you're describing how you're walking through life with Parkinson's is the way that we all can orient ourselves to walk through life with whatever fill in the blank for what your crucible is. Um, this idea that it's not, you know, it's not the end of your story. We say it all the time. It's not the end of your story. If you learn the lessons from it and you, you apply it moving forward, that's a key part moving forward. It can be the best story of your life and you can do some great things. We would not have this podcast beyond the crucible wouldn't exist. If work didn't go through his crucible, mm -hmm. um, your work, to benefit Parkinson's uh, research, that wouldn't have happened without your diagnosis. So some gain can indeed come from loss. And your story, what you just described, is not just for people who have physical limitations or who have physical crucibles. It's for anybody who's gone through a difficult time, lost a job, uh, tough family situation. You're an inspiration, not to make you blush, because you said earlier that you don't like that necessarily, but you're an inspiration for anybody who's gone through a crucible for the way that you've continued to not march forward, but ski forward, if you will. Well, thank, thank you for the kind words. I appreciate that. You know, one of the things that um, Michael J. Fox talks about a lot is um, focus on what you can do, not on what you can't do. And uh, I'm sure, you know, there's a lot of people who think that way. Um, but with, with he being who he is and what he's done for Parkinson's research, you know, he, he's an important person in, in my life. And um, I, I think about that a lot. And I think that kind of gets at what, what both of you are talking about is that, you know, in any situation, no matter what challenge you have, whether it be, you know, a loss or a disease or whatever the challenge is, there's always something we can do. And, and how do we harness the energy to take those steps to move forward? And, uh, you know, Warwick, you talked about, you know, not be, staying under the covers. You know, how do you get out of bed and say, OK, what what can I do? What am I going to accomplish? And how do I kind of make the world a better place or make my life better? Or what, what can I do? And so much of it is, is up to us. If we focus on what we can do, I think it's a, a lot better life going forward. That sound you just heard, listener, is the captain turning on the fastened seatbelt sign, indicating that we're beginning our descent to land the plane of the show. I was going to use some cute um, cross-country skiing <laughs> metaphor, but frankly, I don't know any because I've never been cross-country skiing, so I didn't want to embarrass myself and try to do that. I've been on planes. I know what happens. Captain you know, turns on the fastened seatbelt sign, says it's about time to uh, land. We're not going to land yet, though. Warwick's going to have another question or two. But, Bill, I would be remiss if I did not give you the chance to let listeners know how they can find out more about what you do to raise money uh, for Parkinson's. How can they find out more? Is there a website, someplace they can go to find out more? Uh, sure. Um, Michael J. Fox Foundation for Parkinson's Research. Um, if you go into their website and uh, go to Team Fox and then search on my name, um, you should be able to find what we're doing. Great. Warwick, take us home. Yeah, well, thank you, Bill, for being here. I was just so inspired by your talk at Harvard Business School and um, how you've just um, you know, really used your pain for a purpose. You haven't given up uh, on life. You've still uh, cross-country skied, raising money for Parkinson's. And just you know, your attitude to life is an inspiration for so many. I love what you say. Uh, focus on what you can do, not what you can't do. It's easy to look back. And uh, you know, for me, I don't know, 
150-year-old family media business, what could have happened? And gee, you know, all of those stupid thing mistakes I made. But uh, it's not the same. But you can't look backwards. You can't change what happened. But yeah, even for me, I think crucibles can give you a degree of empathy and compassion, which I think it has for me. I'm less judgmental of people because, look, we all make big mistakes, bad things happen. And so your attitude to life is such an inspiration. So many lessons, having a supportive family, having, you know, uh, values and beliefs uh, can be uh, can be huge. It can be a huge foundation. Having a supportive family, unconditional love is massive. So just thank you for what you're doing beyond just raising money for Parkinson's, which is huge, but continue to cross-country ski and living life, showing that, you know, Parkinson's is not a death death sentence that when you go through tragedy, it doesn't have to be the end of your story. You can use it for a purpose. You can continue to live and be optimistic. And just by being you, you're an inspiration. You don't have to do anything other than be, be Bill Brown. And that's an inspiration to so many. So I guess maybe not so much a question than a, a commendation or just um, there's a lot that we all can learn from you and how you live your life and your attitude to life. It's, you might not think it's remarkable, but I think most of the rest of us think it's pretty remarkable. So you probably heard that before, but uh, it is remarkable. There's a lot all of us can learn. As Gary rightly says, beyond just people that have Parkinson's, anybody that deals with tragedy, which is kind of most of us and have had challenges in life, there's a lot we can learn from your attitude to life. It's truly inspiring. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And thanks for the opportunity to be on this podcast. Okay, I can do this. I could <laughs> the plane's on the ground, but I also could say we crossed the finish line because I think there's probably That's where I thought line. you were gonna go. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. Thank you for reinforcing my decision to say we've crossed the finish line. And uh, listeners, what that means is that we have wrapped another episode of Beyond the Crucible. And until we meet next time, please remember this truth uh, that we've unpacked here in our conversation with Bill Brown, and that is this. Yeah, crucibles are difficult. They're tough. They're hard. They can be things that you think about a lot, right? Bill says he doesn't go two minutes without thinking about his Parkinson's. Um, sometimes they can be good thoughts. Sometimes they can be not so good thoughts. So we know it's difficult. We know it's hard. But we also know through the experience that we've had, through the experience Bill has had, and through the experience all the guests that we've talked to on the show, uh, now in its 140-something episode, um, we know that those bad experiences, those those traumas, tragedies, setbacks, failures do not have to be the end of, of your story. They can, in fact, be the beginning of a new story. If you learn the lessons of your crucible, you apply those lessons and you keep doing exactly what Bill has done. Keep moving forward. Maybe you're not going to ski forward. Maybe you're not a skier, but keep moving forward. If you do that and you and you dedicate yourself to a life of significance, the, the next act, the next story that you live out will be the most rewarding one yet because where it ends is at that life of significance.